Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In today's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted is joined by writer Gabrielle Glazer to discuss the increase in high-risk drinking among women and older adults. Gabrielle Glazer is the author of New York Times best-selling book, Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Learn more about her work at GabrielleGlazer.com. Don't go anywhere. So what is the story with women and wine? I mean, women friends I know have so-called book clubs these days. These clubs oftentimes involve going to someone's house or meeting out at a bar and talking over a good book. Some say it sometimes involves more wine and socializing than actual discussion of the book. But they report having a great time. So what's the big concern? More Americans are drinking high amounts of alcohol, and the greatest increases are seen among women and older adults, according to a new study published in JAMA Psychiatry. Researchers say the increases are higher than what they've observed in prior studies. For men, high-risk drinking increased 15%, and alcohol use disorder increased close to 35%. But for women, high-risk drinking increased close to 60%, and the alcohol use disorder increased nearly 84%. It's not totally clear why women and older adults have higher increases in this type of drinking, but researchers have speculated. They think over the years cultural norms about drinking have changed and that it's become more acceptable for women to drink in similar ways as men. Do we really have to be concerned about this? And if she were to become concerned about her drinking, would she have to never drink again? Or are there other ways she could treat it? And what if a journalist became curious about what's been going on with women and wine? What might she find? So, Gabrielle Glazer, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of what a day in the life of Gabrielle looks like? Well, I am a full-time writer. I'm at work on my fourth book right now, so I'm just starting the writing process of that. Um, I have, I'm the mother of uh, three daughters. One is 25, one is 22, and the baby is 16, so... I have to get myself out of bed to get her to high school because uh, there's not a bus that takes her. Um, I have a dog, and I wish I could say I'm one of those really regimented writers who has a serious writing schedule, but I do not. I I just don't. Um, mm-hmm. Some days I write thousands of words in a sitting, and sometimes I struggle to write 500. Um, I interview a lot of people. I uh, I distract myself a lot with the YouTube videos and the news. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I'm guilty as well. Well, I think we all are. I think we all are. I look at Facebook far too much. You know, the usual, nothing truly extraordinary. Okay. Well, how did you get into uh, journalism and writing? I wanted to become uh, a historian. I got a master's in history, a bachelor's and a master's in history, and I, I fell in love with the country of Brazil, and I learned Portuguese, and I lived in in Brazil for a while doing research for my master's thesis, and I was absolutely convinced that this was going to be the life for me. Um, 
And I came back to the States to apply for uh, PhD programs, which I got accepted to. But a friend of mine who had a job as a news assistant at the New York Times um, was leaving his job, and his boss needed a fill-in. And I told him about my plans. Look, I'm, I'm not serious about this. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll do it, but... I'm not serious about this. I'm going to go get a Ph.D. in Brazilian history. And he laughed. He said, you're never going to get a Ph.D. in Brazilian history. You're going to fall in love with journalism, which I did. And I um, have not looked back. So that was in 1987 or 88, and I really have not looked back. So, Wow. Um, so you've been in the journalism track for almost like 30 years. That's right. Wow. That's that, right. Is, that is that is really uh, – like totally interesting. So what how did you stumble into getting the ideas to write the best kept secret? It's kind of a book we're going to talk about in today's podcast. So um, kind of prompted that how did you well, stumble into that? I um I have covered health and medicine for a very long time and my husband and daughters and I had made a cross country move from Oregon where I'm from back to the East Coast, and I happened to see an op-ed piece about the number of women in rehab increasing significantly, and I thought, well, that's really interesting, and I did some research into it, and I could see that women were drinking more than ever before. I noticed it among my own peers. I noticed it in my family. I noticed it in myself. And I thought, well, I wonder why this is. What are the, what are the, what are the data points, and and what do they mean? And so I put together a proposal. I had written two books prior to that, so I wasn't, I wasn't a novice at putting together a proposal. And um, I sold it to Simon and Schuster, and I thought the book would take me two years to write because the data was quite was quite striking. It did show that women were drinking more than ever before. Women were getting arrested for drunk driving more than ever before. Women were getting admitted to the ER more frequently than they'd ever been. They were suffering from cirrhosis more um, at higher rates. But um, I, what I didn't realize was how they could, that there were different so I crafted a book around that, and then I thought, well, everybody knows how people get better. They go to AA, and I don't have a drinking problem myself. It's I have a pretty serious shut-off valve. And when I started researching the recovery industry, I was really shocked, and I had to get a year extension for the book because it was so underreported. The, the truth of the rehab industry, the truth of how people actually do recover, the breadth of ways in which they actually can get better was so vast and so significant, I it took me another year to, to complete the book. Wow. I mean, I so I've been an alcohol and drug counselor for, you know, some years. But that is really um, interesting because what we know to be true in the research is that 10% of people with an alcohol or drug addiction will actually show up at, in the treatment doors. So right. there's another 90% running around. 
either actively addicted or they're treating it on their own. And just some of my experience, what I've become even more and more interested in is these other people because they're the larger percentage of people out there. But yet we're focusing in on the 10% that make it to the door. And right, and we're focusing we're focusing on those people because those are the most severely dependent. But what we what we do know, what the data show, are that there are 16 million Americans, roughly 16 million Americans, with with what's called now alcohol use disorder. And alcohol use disorder replaces the older terms of alcohol. Um, dependence and alcohol abuse, and prior to that, alcoholism, um, which is pretty binary. And what alcohol use disorder suggests is that there's a spectrum um, of, of, of use, of misuse, from mild to moderate to severe. And yes, the severe people are usually the people we see. They're the ones who are falling down drunk on the sidewalk. They're the ones who, who drink throughout the day. Um, but what the data show are that people, and there was a recent study in JAMA, uh, the Journal of American Medicine, of the American Medicine Association that came out in early fall, late, late summer, that showed the people who are drinking to excess more than four drinks a day for a woman, more than five drinks a day for a man on a weekly basis um, has increased 30% since 2002 to 2013. So that's a pretty striking number. And that doesn't mean that someone is alcohol dependent, okay, if you're doing that. What it means is this is a pattern of risky drinking that needs to be looked at and and, and curbed in some way. And the, the, the point that I try to make, and I tried to make in my book, and the point that I've repeatedly tried to make in, in um, various magazine articles and online pieces is that there is really a whole array of ways in which people can get better. We tend to hew in this country to the idea that the only way for people to get better is for them to abstain entirely. And the data show that that's just simply not true. Their science has, has, has really found a multitude of, of, of methods for people to get better, for people to recover, and we still tend to really hew to this idea that was born in the 1930s out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that the, really the only way to get better is to stop entirely and to consider your illness, consider your drinking problem as an illness that is chronic and progressive and recurring, and the data just don't, just don't, don't hold that to be true for the vast majority of people who get into trouble with their drinking. That is so well said and refreshing to hear. Because even uh-huh. when we think about what, yeah, like, and, I'm, and I've been schooled in the old school and some of the new school as well in terms of um, being in the treatment world for so long as a therapist is uh, right. you nailed it. You nailed it right on the head is that a lot of these programs will see people on the spectrum and basically say, well, wait a second, you meet the criteria in old DSM-4 language, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Right. Um, you're alcohol dependent, so that means you're um, going to – it's addiction 
is a brain or is a, is a disease and you have to deal with this with the rest of your life. So that's why right. you have to stay sober. Right. And what's interesting, if you go back a few years, just in the treatment world, there was a movement and a focus in on harm reduction. Right. And I, and I think kind of like where you're speaking to at least a piece of it in the wheelhouse is this, this um, percentage of the population that maybe doesn't meet alcohol dependence or alcoholism um, but they're they're engaging in some behaviors just in their interaction with alcohol that could be risky and dangerous. Right. Some of them might eventually end up at the treatment doorstep and it progresses to that level, but the large percentage of what we know don't. Like, for instance, even if you were to look at the percentage of people that will become dependent on opiates, cocaine, alcohol, the large percentage of people that try those never become addicted. Right, right. So and it's imp- you begin to connect all these dots together, and you're like, well, wait a second, we need to... And that's why I'm so glad when I, you know, I've, I've, I've read your book that I was like, wow, this is really refreshing to hear. I hope the treatment community picks it up and makes it more like viable for people to come in and talk to somebody and maybe get some tools and strategies and maybe learn about themselves but not be labeled as alcohol dependent. Correct. Because, again, the vast majority of people who are somewhere on the spectrum are not it, I mean, alcohol dependent is 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 even you know from the DSM four the the new term would be and it's clunky alcohol use disorder, but it it you know you're somewhere on the spectrum and and my point in in writing this book and in the work that I've done since is is really trying to educate people about the importance of understanding that there is a whole again there's a whole toolbox. So what would need to happen if someone thought they were drinking too much? Would they just be left to figure it out on their own? Would they automatically need to attend AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, for the rest of their life? Would they go in and get assessed at a substance abuse clinic and maybe attend outpatient treatment? You see, this is a very compelling question. We know that the large percentage of people with substance use issues never even show up at the treatment doors. But what exactly are these people doing? Are they testing it out on themselves, developing pseudo-safety plans to reduce their use, to try not to have binge drinking episodes, or just ignoring it and continuing to abuse alcohol? Whole Again, there's a whole toolbox out there of, of, of methods that help people get better once they do get into trouble. There is a, a drug called naltrexone, which is used widely throughout Europe. It is a drug that you take um, in Europe. You take an hour before. It's an anti-craving medication, so it blocks the highs. It blocks some of the brain, uh, uh, the endorphins that are released when you drink. And if you take it an hour before you drink, you experience the social benefits of drinking with your friends or your family, but you're not you're not getting the the buzz, and it doesn't mean you have to clutch um, a seltzer water for the rest of your life or a diet coke or a Seven Up. Uh, 
you, 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 I'm not telling people you can have your cake and eat it too, but it is a tool that helps, that helps people learn to moderate. And, um, it's especially helpful for binge drinkers who, who once they start, they just simply can't stop. And what the drug does is that it, it actually, it's, it, you get no reward from from drinking once you take this medication and in many cases certainly in Finland where a vast majority of the research has been done it allows people to learn to moderate you break the cycle of binge drinking you still drink you have one or two drinks but you don't get the reward for drinking you don't get that rush of feeling and so you don't you stop drinking like a jerk and it's it's sold over the counter in many countries in Europe, and it's used with great success. There are harm reduction techniques that are widely used um, throughout this country, and also throughout uh, Europe and another and in other developed countries, um, developed regions of the world that that really give people cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive tools to see, okay, well, wait a minute. What's your urge? Why are you drinking? Is it out of habit? Is it out of anxiety? Is it out of loneliness? Is it out of anger? What are you, why are you reaching for that drink? And what is it doing for you? And there are many therapists who use these tools and they tell people to use note cards or journals. Okay, write what you feel after your first drink. Write what you're able to do after your first drink. Write your feelings. Write your cognitive abilities. Write what you're, you're, you're thinking. And so on after the second drink and after the third drink and after the fourth drink. And I know a woman who wrote her feelings, her cognition, her abilities on note cards after each drink. And she saw that there was a main break between the second and third drink. She got maudlin. The first drink, she felt good. The second drink, she felt even a little better. The third drink, she felt started feeling sad. She felt sort of feeling sorry for herself. Her handwriting got sloppy. Um, she forgot what she... And by the fourth drink, she wrote down even messier stuff. And in the morning, she reviewed the notes, and she taped them on her refrigerator door to see it as a reminder. Hey, this is what happens after you have a second drink. And I think that's one of the most brilliant tools I've ever come across in all my years of reporting about this. This is where the cost-benefit analysis kicks in. It's no fun after this, so stop. Yeah, see, I, I, I love that from the standpoint that, you know, we all kind of do especially when it comes to uh, drinking and drugging and just you know, hearing like thousands of stories, people do their own personal experiments on themselves. But then when you draw attention to kind of take it to a deeper level in terms of thoughts and feelings, right? when you're using, then that increases self-awareness. Exactly. And then the person is more aware. And then when you do the cost-benefit analysis, it's easier to see. So I really, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that strategy. Well, I think it's really, I've, I've mentioned it to several people, and um, I, I think it should be more widely employed. Yes, yes, definitely. Because um, that's, part, so I've done like, it seems like zillions of 
I call them OWI groups, operating while intoxicated. So facilitating these groups for like probably a decade or so, you know, you get like 10 or 12 people with anywhere from two drunk drivings to like three to four to five to six to seven. And what's right. what's interesting, even in that population that I've just learned from practical experience, is that certain people have progressed, even the ones that have had the five, six, or seven OWIs, a certain percentage of those people have progressed to daily drinking. Right. But what, I've, but what I've also seen, which is really interesting, is that a larger percentage can stop and start, and what they have is this binge drinking profile. So they're able to stop while they're in the program, get through it. They have a great plan. I talk to them. They're pretty smart about how they're going to manage their drinking. And then what will happen is they're able to maintain it for long periods of time. And so oftentimes with these people, you might see a gap in between their operating while intoxicated. There might be two, three years, and then what will happen is it sort of like snuck up on them again. They had another binge drinking episode, and that's mm-hmm. what did them in. So this idea of kind of approaching it from that standpoint, even at a medication level, makes a ton of sense to me. So are men and women equally at risk for developing drinking problems? If so, then maybe we should label all men and women with drinking problems as alcoholics. Or are there gender differences? And if so, what will we do with those differences? And maybe labeling someone as an alcoholic or addict and making that their identity isn't necessarily the best idea. Because what I'm curious, even more curious about, is your your book. And, you know, you had a ton of great research in there. And oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you did your homework. I was like, dang, she's, she could be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> she's done enough work in this area to know. But um, one of the... One of the findings, I think it was the 2012, the Yale study, kind of looking at, I think, different physiological mechanisms between women and men in terms of their use of alcohol to cope with stress. And right. I thought that was a cool study to cite, and I don't know if you could take make any more comments about that or your thoughts on that. Oh, gosh, it's been a long time. That book came out four years ago, almost five years ago. So um, I'm blanking a little bit on what that study Oh, yeah, I know it's a cocaine study. Um, What it showed was that men were, when seen, when shown a photograph of their drug of choice, and these were people who used cocaine to excess. Men who, when they saw cocaine, images of cocaine, it created, it, it flooded, the, the pleasure centers of their minds were flooded with um, desire and cravings. And when women were shown pictures of the drug, um, they, they did not have the same reaction, but women did react to photographs of a crying baby. The, the, like their cravings were ignited when they showed pictures of a crying baby or of a horrible traffic jam or of an angry, you know, yelling, let's say, authority figure like a boss. So what that showed us, it was a very small study, but what that showed us is that men and women respond differently to stressors. They respond, their cravings are ignited by different 
mechanisms. And we don't exactly know what those are yet, but we do know that women are almost twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with anxiety disorders and also depression. And they're far more likely to self-medicate those conditions with, with alcohol. I'm not an expert in other uh, substances, but I, we do know that 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 women are um, f- because of their predilection to anxiety, and because there are a couple of other risk factors as well. Women who have a history of an eating disorder, or women who have a history of having been sexually abused, are far more at risk for developing alcohol problems later in life. So, off the bat, those are four things that women are more more likely to have experienced in their lifetimes, and they're more at risk for going on to develop drinking problems. So we need, as a country, as a society, to be aware of those factors and to be able to treat them accordingly and not just to label people, hey, whoa, dude, you're an alcoholic or you know, lady, you're an alcoholic. That's a dated term. It's very binary. It's very shaming. It it connotes a lifelong condition. And that's simply not the case. You, we don't call smokers lifelong recovering smokers. We call them ex-smokers. People who quit smoking are ex-smokers. And they're not in recovery for the rest of their lives. They're people who used to smoke. And when people who are formerly obese people lose weight, we don't say, oh, yeah, they're recovering, you know, obese people. We say, oh, yeah, they lost a lot of weight. They got their eating under control and they lost a lot of weight. Well, the same is true and possible and very, very possible for drinkers. And, um, again, as I mentioned, there are drugs that help people manage their cravings. There is cognitive behavioral therapy that can help people understand what their urges mean, what, what, where they're coming from, and how to manage them. There's something called motivational interviewing, which helps people resolve their ambivalence about why they're using drugs or, or drinking too much. And again, there's, there's, there's a whole toolkit out there for people um, to be aware of. And it's not just one way you got to kick this habit and and that's it and and you got to stay on top of it for the rest of your life well yeah you know it's a condition like any others that that you need to learn to manage and be aware of but it doesn't mean the the old narrative of recovery was that if you don't stop if you don't become sober or clean right now you're going to land in jail in an institution or de- or be dead that might be true for people on the very severe end of the spectrum, but for the vast majority of people who overuse, it's just not the, it's just not the case. Yeah, well, well said. Do you ever think that your position is ever misunderstood? Oh by, yeah, it's understood. It's misunderstood all the time. I'm attacked all the time. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm thinking about that because I come from the treatment community and I can just imagine so. Like, oh yeah, no, 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 no. It's, it's like, really you... because I've. Well, yeah, because I've, I've, I've. Uh, there is this this old paradigm that's rooted in the 1930s, the 1930s, an AA 
filled a clinical and a cultural vacuum because there was really no other way to help problem drinkers at the time than than this methodology, which is rooted in religion. It's not science. It's rooted in religion. And five of the, or I forget if it's five or 12, seven of the 12 steps mentioned God. It's a, it's a, you know, and then people criticize me. They say, well, no, 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 it's a spiritual program. No, it's not. It's a religious program. It's a religious program that uses God and the Supreme Court. It's a, higher courts in three states have, or, or in, in three different jurisdictions, um, have ruled that this is, that ordering somebody into AA or NA is an impingement of their First Amendment rights. It is a separation. It is forcing somebody to go into a religious program that is, if you're an atheist or you're a Buddhist or or uh, an agnostic, it's against it's it, 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 it's against your first the First Amendment rights. It's 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 crossing the line between state and religion. And the separation of church and, and, and state. So it's absolutely religious. And people who are schooled in the old way of thinking believe that this is the case. And maybe it works for them. Maybe they see it work for some of the other people around them. But you're talking about the people who are repeat DUI people, repeat rehab uh, uh, entrance. Well, if it works so well, if the success rate was so high, why are they repeat offenders? We got to try other tools. Yeah, see, that's there, a, that's a, that's what I really connect with is this idea that people are are on like, for instance, we'll just take alcohol are on a spectrum. There's some right. people that can just recreationally use. There's some people that never drink, and not just because. They're an alcoholic just because they don't like. They just don't prefer to drink. They just right. don't drink. And so we have this spectrum of people along this continuum. And I think if I were to make sense of your book and make sense of kind of your position where you're coming from, it would be that we have a spectrum of people, and we need to use a variety of different approaches for those spectrums. In that Absolutely. So we, we have the ones it, that are like going to end up that are, that are drinking daily. They got the shakes, and they would definitely be. Well, 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 wait, just, to, just to be clear, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with drinking daily, but having a drink a day. There's nothing wrong with that. When you say drinking daily, let's be clear that what you're talking about is drinking to excess. Because I think we yeah. have this sort of crazy. Yeah. Okay, so we have this sort of crazy. Oh my God! If you have a drink a day, you're you're, you're a serious drinker. No, that there's people who who drink daily in the in the majority of European countries. For example, in France, in Spain, in Italy, in Portugal, in Greece, um, those people drink daily, sometimes at lunch and dinner. And they live far longer than we do. The the life expectancy in countries where alcohol is integrated into a healthy lifestyle, those people outlive us by a mile, by a mile. They live the life expectancy in countries in the countries I just mentioned exceeds that of the United States by multiple years. So let's not let's not say oh if you drink daily you're 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 on the road to. Per, 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 you know, perdition. It's just not true. 
Yeah. And that's, yeah, where that's I was not what the... From, yeah, where I was coming from was more of us, the person that drinks like eight to 16 beers or... Yes. Okay, well, that's not... That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that. Nobody's going to say that's... Nobody's going to say that's healthy. Like, it's, like, it's, like, 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 yes, this person, and they have liver problems. They're continuing to Right, 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 right. That, that totally right, makes right, sense. Right. And really where I'm coming from is that we do have this variety um, we could develop a variety of treatment approaches for this wide variety and spectrum. Right, right, and and that's what we that's what we need to to focus on. Yeah. So yeah. that's important. So, so if we know drinking is on the rise with women, what should we tell our daughters? Should we spook them into not drinking? Hide the booze in the house? Educate them on being a responsible drinker? Or should we? Let them drink at a younger age like they do in Europe and learn how to drink responsibly. So, so, um, so what would you say to my, so I have two teenage daughters. Mm-hmm. So we know that wine sales, I think, are going through the rough. We know there's just kind of this like culture that's really coming through in the U.S. of women and wine and I think they have a couple of funny YouTube shows as well. I can't remember the name of them. I, I, I sampled a couple of them. I think it was Housewives and Wine or something. I can't remember uh-huh. what it was. Um, but with the increase in drinking among, you know, women, and I think I've seen some research with adolescents as well, young ladies, um, I have two that I'm I'm a dad too, so... What do you think, based on your research and your investigation, would be maybe some of the advice we'd want to give these new generation of younger ladies? Um, I would say that the best prescription for um, the best prescription for helping safeguard their health, their futures, their their mental health, their sexual health, their physical health is to model what it is like to drink moderately on a regular basis because these kids get exposed to binge drinking in college or at high school parties and that becomes normalized and that's just nonsense. Um, I am not sure why we have that in our I mean, there are a lot of reasons why we have that in our culture, but I think one of the reasons why is because we have this insane time, you know, time limit or age limit of 21. And I, in European countries in which, again, in which alcohol is integrated into the family, it's integrated at mealtimes, it's consumed moderately, kids don't go out and drink like jerks. They don't puke until they're, they don't drink until they're puking on the sidewalk. They don't, now that behavior is starting to increase because of global culture and what they see on television, but in general, it's, it's not, it doesn't happen in, in, in those countries. And I think the best prescription is to, again, is to model moderate drinking for your children in your family what responsible drinking looks like, when it's time to say no, and why. And I think kids need to be aware, and teenage, teenagers especially 
need to understand, here's what happens to you after you have one glass of wine. Here's what, or drink, whatever. Unfortunately, they're drinking hard alcohol these days, which is really dangerous. You know, when I was growing up, beer was what high schoolers had at parties. And it was warm, and it was kind of gross, and women typically uh, are more sensitive to bitter. I know you live in Wisconsin, which is the highest uh, beer consuming <laughs> state in the in the country, but beer typically women have um, typically have a little bit more sensitive taste buds than men do, and they are far more sensitive to bitter flavors than are men. And the theory of that is because. Toxins, more often than not, are bitter, and the female palate needs to be protected for the fetus. So toxins, uh, bitter is, is, a, is, a, is a taste that is a sensation that is not necessarily beloved by, um, by females in general. Maybe different than in, in Wisconsin. I know you guys are, you, you like your beer. Um, but when I was growing up, nobody got Nobody got blitzed on warm beer because it was gross. It, but now there are the alcohol companies have marketed all sorts of sweet drinks that are catered to, to women, to girls. And I would just make sure that girls know what it's like to, to, to drink responsibly and to know what it feels like. Here's what it feels like after you have one drink. Here's what it feels like after you have two drinks. Here, let's 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 test yourself and see how you um, see how you navigate. See how you see how clumsy you are. See what you're capable of. See what you're not capable of. So they are aware of their own limits. I know that's against the law, but I'm not a. a, a um, you can do. You can. Experiment in your own home. That's that's my that's that's how I've done it. Well, um, what about the other thing I've read? So I want to well, thank you for all that great information. And what about um, I know drinking among the older adults is on the rise as well. I've seen some research coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, any thoughts on that? I know that. I don't know if your book was really about that. That's sort of no, it, it really wasn't. And I would, what I would say about that is that this is the baby boomer generation that has is pretty accustomed to um, mind altering substances, starting from you know Woodstock and moving forward. So that's not that surprising to me um, that they're you know continuing to to seek mind altering experiences. Um, the older the body gets, the less capable it is of, of metabolizing and processing alcohol. So I, you know, again, just try to try to keep things try to keep things moderate. Nobody wants to hear "never drink again." Nobody wants to, unless you're really, really, really um, severely alcohol dependent person, and you really, truly cannot manage to moderate. Um, it's just you know, people just need to be aware. They need to be aware of their triggers. They need to be aware of 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 how they feel after 
one drink, two drinks, three drinks. They need to be able to hydrate. You need to eat. Don't drink on an empty stomach. That's not good. It's pretty. It's pretty self-explanatory. You know, don't drink like a jerk. Yeah, I like that. Like <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway. Don't drink like a jerk. Yeah, and I like this part about like, you know, it's it's about like paying attention to how you react to alcohol, and then sort of like doing your own personal experiment to kind of figure that out and understand right. it, rather than just like not do any of that and then go with the cultural norms of, of binge drinking. Hey, I'm going to a party. I'm in college. I'm going to have like 12 beers and get annihilated with everybody exactly. else. Exactly. Don't. That's a really dangerous thing to do. I would, I mean, with my daughters, I have, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, so it's, um, we drink wine ceremonially, cer- ceremonially on, on Friday nights and on holidays, and I have used those opportunities to show the girls, okay, this is what it feels, and again, I, like, you know, I have three girls, so this is what it feels like, here's what it, you know, how do you feel after one glass? Okay, well, how's, here's a little bit more, and that's enough, because you're young, um, but um, it, it normalizes it, and it, it takes away the 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 interest in going out and getting obliterated because it's just no fun to wake up puking. I mean, who likes that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like this idea of exploring and then really evaluating and understanding. Exactly. Have the kids explore it and evaluate it as well in the safety of your own home. I don't know if that's legal in Wisconsin. I think it's legal here in New Jersey. But, you know, evaluate it under supervision. And and it it sort of takes the 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 um, oh I mean I, look I'll never understand why binge drinking looks fun to people I'll never I mean I've been working in this field now for a very long time eight years and I will never I'll never get that I I I I must admit um, but when you when you normalize it and you destigmatize Drinking is something that, okay, this is a part of a regular part of life that can be enjoyable and enhance, and, and, and enhance your experience at, at dinner time if you do it moder- moderately. Why not? Why not? Why not help your kids? You help your kids how to drive. Why wouldn't you help them learn how to drink? Yeah, yeah, I think of, uh, because I'm a teacher over at UW Whitewater, and um, I do a section in my I teach a course called Alcohol and Other Drug Studies. Mm-hmm. And so part of the course is we learn about standard drinks, blood alcohol levels, and what I'm kind of like really surprised at is the lack of knowledge of of that of those two things: mm-hmm. blood alcohol levels, what it actually does to you, how does it sneak up on you. And how do you get to a place that you really probably didn't really want to get to, but you got there? And so some of that has to do with just what you drink, how much you're drinking, know what's, knowing what's sort of in the glass. Right. You know, you say, I had two drinks. Well, then you find out, well, guess what? They were like triples. Or I had right. three of those. And then, you're, and then once your BAC gets above like 0.12 or 0.15, we know inhibitions are lowered. We know people have terrible judgment. 
and then they might just decide to continue to drink after that point. So I like this idea of moderation and understanding your relationship with it, not like hiding from it, but understand your relationship with exactly. it. Exactly. So face it, face it full on. Rather than making it this big taboo, face it full on. Yeah. Face it full on, understand it. That's the key to everything. Demystify it. You know, it. understand where, 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 you know, what it all means. So. Well, so. we are, um, are nearing the end here. So is there any valuable resources you'd like to share or things you'd like to, you know, send a shout out to in terms of new books? Oh gosh, let's see. Um, I have some resources on my website, um, com, uh, of places that are, if you do get into trouble, there's a, uh, and you need some help online, there's a, there are different groups, and they're all listed under alternate forms of help, so that's one place to go. Um, if you think you need help moderating, there's a group called Moderation Management. There's a, there are apps out there. There's another app called, uh, Checkup and Choices, which helps people, um, track their drinking and, 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 and learn how to, how to manage it that way. And I'm sort of blanking on some other, other yeah. ideas, but that's a good start. Nice, nice. Yeah, I know there's an Are You Buzzed app. I usually have all the kids and or students in yeah. the class download. Yeah, kind of helps them keep track of stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there that way to kind of prevent yourself from, you know, obviously it's mainly to protect the young people from making decisions they don't really necessarily want to make in terms of, you know, going out and driving drunk and. Right, right, right. Well, that's a terrible thing. That's a well, terrible thing. Well, we want to thank you from Recovery Nation. Um, Gabrielle, you've been a wonderful guest. And with that, we salute you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you to Gabrielle Glazer for joining us today. Make sure to find her work at GabrielleGlazer.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit FullPotentialNow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.